0: So grab a Bible and open it to uh, Isaiah 53, and um, let me remind you, uh, the reason that we're studying Isaiah 53 is that there's no greater messianic passage in the entire Bible, uh, at least the Old Testament, uh, concerning Christ, and what, what we're trying to do is use it to enhance our appreciation and enjoyment of the Easter season that is just about upon us so while you're finding Isaiah 53, uh, let me mention three quick things. Uh, Gigi, if you're interested, uh, continues this Saturday. We will discuss, we discussed the right view of God yesterday. We'll talk about the right view of man this coming week. But I, I got a little hint for you. It's going to be the opposite of what I said yesterday. So. But if you're interested, 10 o'clock. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. Uh, also, uh, this trip to Honduras led by the Carols. I, I wish you'd consider that. Chris Carroll went to Honduras, gosh, 10 years ago, and he's been going ever since, and is really uh, that thing has really gotten a hold of him, and it's really impressive, I think, what God has done through him, through that, that Honduras connection. And then finally, um, guys, you know that I don't say anything about politics. I don't, I don't, I don't push politics uh, from up here, but I'm not doing that now. I, you know, uh, the politics is not our solution. Uh, you know, the Jesus was far more conservative than the Republicans and far more liberal than the Democrats. But um, uh, this is just a family announcement. We have three members of our congregation that are running for county office. And the, count, the, the election season is on us, if you can see all the, the signs in the, in the front yards. David Lenore is running for county mayor. Uh, Wayne Mashburn is running for recorder of deeds. And George Shisholm is running for county trustee. Those are three brothers who are members of this congregation. Uh, they have entered the membership and made, given their testimonies, and we've known and, and seen them, seen them or, serve around here. So all I'm saying is, guys, we're, we're uh, quick to talk about the, uh, the problems that exist, and we have an opportunity to get behind three men that we know to be Lovers of Jesus in these offices, so I, I hope you'll give that some thought. Not just, um, um, I, I mean, not, not just in the polls, but in other ways that we can support these guys as they uh, as they run for office. Now, and you'll be hearing more. I think the the, uh, the election is in May the nineteenth or something like that. But um, we'll talk more about it as we get closer. Now, follow. I'm going to read three verses out of um, out of Isaiah chapter fifty three. Um, <clears throat> And I hope you again remember that it's in preparation for Easter. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, uh, this word, it endures forever. Guys, rarely, if ever, do I call your attention to my sermon title. Actually, it, all, it always peeves me that I have to come up with a sermon title. You know, you're trying to get something pithy and catchy, you know, and a sermon title, and nobody ever cares what that sermon title is. I don't blame you. I even bought a set of books one time, uh, still have them, and I bought them for the purpose of just finding sermon titles. You know, it, it just sermon titles don't, don't really mean much. But uh, today's sermon title is particularly intriguing, if I don't say so myself. Uh, uh, the, the title is Good Friday Revisited. <laughs> now, that's, that's kind of catchy and pithy as far as it goes, but do you know that it contains, it contains an anachronism? There is an error in chronology in that title. Um, My text is out of the Old Testament, as you can see, but the event takes place in the New Testament. How can you revisit something that has not happened? And it it won't happen for another 750 years. Gang... What's being alluded to here in these three verses are the events that surround Good Friday, the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. What you have here is a piece of predictive prophecy. That is, there in, in, in broad strokes... It is giving you some glimpses of of something that's going to take place in the New Testament 750 years later. Let let me give you an example. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Guys, you know in in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in a final display of indignity, um, they crucified him in, in between two criminals. And yet, ultimately, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Do you remember the story? It's in John 19. Joseph of Arimathea shows up. Joseph of Arimathea is a rich guy. And he asks to see Pilate, and Pilate lets him in. And uh, he comes in, and he says, uh, listen, I'd like, the body of the, and I'd like the dead body of Jesus. And, and Pilate gives it to him. And then he takes the body, and he meets up with Nicodemus, Does that name ring a bell? Nicodemus. Nicodemus is introduced to you in John 3 where the whole discussion of the rebirth is found. But apparently by John 19, Nicodemus is converted. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a rich guy, Nicodemus, a rich guy, they get together and they embalm the body and then they place it in a garden tomb in which no one has ever place before and by the way if you one of the 700 people that are going to Israel next year uh, (laughs) you'll get to see that spot that garden tomb but do you see guys he was he was identified with the wicked in the death and then he was buried in a rich man's tomb what what irony you don't bury hardened criminals in graves owned by rich men. It's a piece of irony, yes, but it's also a piece of predictive prophecy, ladies and gentlemen. And one of the reasons um, that everything that you read in the New Testament concerning Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and about his burial and the Rich man and all that business. But one of the reasons is because it is to fulfill verse 9 of Isaiah 53. Gang, just that, just the fact that an item was mentioned that was fulfilled 750 years later, just that is a marvelous display of the supernatural. How can you write about it 700 years before it happens? Unless you've planned it as God had. Now, guys, in these three verses, Isaiah is giving us a perspective. He's giving us some details, yes. But he's giving us a perspective. A perspective on this whole event that we call Good Friday, and there are two headings under which I want us to look at a perspective, the perspective that I think we should adopt as we view the events of Good Friday, which is 12 days away. Here's the first heading, utter innocence. Now, guys, stay with me. Here's what I want to do. I want to show you the utter innocence in the Old Testament passage. And then I want to show you how it got fulfilled in the New Testament event. Okay? So the first thing that we need to see is the utter innocence. Look at verse 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Total moral purity, there's no violence, there's no deceit. He has a pure tongue, for heaven's sakes. Who ever heard of one of those? Also, we're told in verse 8 that he was stricken for transgression, all right, but it wasn't his. It was the transgression of, of his people. And by the way, if you want to know what vicarious means, there it is. If you've heard that word bantered about in the Christian church, vicarious sufferings, well, there it is. He was smitten, he was stricken for transgressions, but the transgressions weren't his. They were mine. Because, Because what you're seeing here is the servant being portrayed as someone who is utterly innocent, now, guys, before I go any further concerning his innocence, I want to tell, tell you about this book because it's going to help us talk about his innocence. I've got to just tell you a little story about this book. I've had this book since 1973. Um, the title of the book is called The Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Standpoint. Um, it's an easy read. It's, it's, it's really broken up into two halves because you know that there was not just one trial of Jesus'. There were six. Jesus stood trial six times, three before the Jews and three before the Romans. Six trials. And this this author is pointing out the miscarriages of justice in both sets of trials. But let me tell you a little story about the book, where I got it. This book was given to me by an attorney who had just killed himself. Now, I don't know, I mean, it's inscribed to us, January the 7th, 1973, to Jimmy and Susie, and it's signed by the man who killed himself, and I don't know when he did that, but I know that it was his intention for me to have this book. Uh, As a seminarian, I uh, I worked in a small church in Louisville, Mississippi. I was a youth director, and his son was in my youth program. And so this was the first funeral that I'd ever been a part of. And after the funeral, they gave me this book. And in this book, what you will find on display in, gosh, 800 pages, is you're going to find the guilty, but it just isn't Jesus. Uh, for example, let's just talk a minute about the Jewish trials, the the, the, the religious trials. He mentions, I forget how many, 33 violations of, he, uh, of Jewish law. For instance, um, trials in Judaism, religious trials, were, ne- were never to occur at night. That was law, but that was violated so they could try Jesus. Um, in Jewish trials, the high priest was never to, add, to act as a questioner. That is, he was never to put questions to the defendant. He was supposed to act as judge. He was supposed to listen to the questions and listen to the, to the replies, and then he was supposed to make a judgment. He was never to ask anything of himself, but he does in, in Jesus' trial. Um, thirdly, The defendants were never allowed to speak because the case was supposed to speak for itself. But the defendant in this case was Jesus and he spoke. And then another one that I remember is that uh, when there was a a death verdict, there was always supposed to be a 24-hour waiting period. But they were in too big a hurry to wait those 24 hours. So they took him and crucified him. Again, I forget the number. 33 pieces of Jewish legislation violated in the trial of an innocent victim. But when you turn to the to the Roman trials, oh gosh. It gets worse uh, because the Roman trial, this is the, these are the, um, the conclusions of the Roman judges, which, of course, was one man whose name was Pontius Pilate. And he says this in chapter 18, verse 36. He says, uh, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. He says that three times. He says it in 1838. He says it in 1904. He says it in 1906. And then in 1912, John 19, uh, 12, he's looking for a way to release him. And do you remember, as a part of that whole episode, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, Don't have anything to do with this righteous man. By the way, she calls him righteous. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't touch him. Because I have suffered greatly tonight in a dream. Don't do anything to him. Um, And then, of course, at the end, as the trial winds down, this is what we find. This is in Luke 23, verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices... Prevailed. Not reason, not justice, not facts, not evidence, their voices. The greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of mankind. Takes place right here, alluded to in Isaiah 53. And it all unfolds in the lap of an innocent sufferer. All of this happens to someone who is utterly innocent. Here's the other part of the perspective that I think Isaiah wants us to have. And it's the uh, perspective of total submission. Let me show you where I see that. Um, Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before shears is silent. And he opened not his mouth. Silence. Silence in the face of oppression and affliction. Why? Because he knew that all of this was necessary. If the great work of atonement was to occur, all of this is necessary. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ was not dragged to a cross. He he didn't come kicking and screaming. He went voluntarily. And he went silently. A silent sufferer. And the silence can be explained this way. That he was in perfect submission to his father. If the sins of people were going to be paid for, and there was going to be a grounds upon which God could forgive them, He was going to have to go through with this. And he does it without a word, without a protest, without a display of power, without a complaint. He goes to the slaughter. Again, why? Because he and his father were in perfect accord. He was in submission to the father. One of the images that you get in these three verses is that he was a, a sheep that had been shorn if you've, if you've ever seen C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, I mentioned it last week, but if you've ever seen it, there's a scene, you know, Edmund has been captured by the white witch and, and he's a captive. And to, to get him set free, uh, Aslan, who is a lion, this big, beautiful lion, king of the forest, um, Aslan has to exchange himself for, for Edmund And so he turns himself in, in essence, to the white witch. And um, the first thing that she does is that she shaves him. And there he lies on the the altar. And he, he just looks naked. Jesus was naked. And we're told he gives himself. For the transgressions of my people. You know, at Christmas time, there is a song that we like to sing. I mean, I think it's the favorite of all Christmas revelers. Um, it's the uh, great Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World. I, I think that's number one on the hit parade, but maybe not. Isaac Watts wrote more hymns than that one. You know that, don't you? Here's another one that he wrote. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head For such a worm as I. Yes, he would. And he did. Guys, um, if you look at verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. You know, you know what happened after Pilate eventually washes his hands and says, Okay, you go, you know, and the voices have prevailed. Not justice, but voices. And um they take him away and they strip him and they put this robe on him and they put the crown of thorns, and one of the things they do is they spit on him. <laughs> I want to tell you a story. Um I hope it doesn't detract from the sobriety of this scene, and I hope it won't, but I don't think it will. But when I was in the ninth grade, um, I went to a school. I went to Hillcrest High School. I was in the first graduating class, or supposed to be. But I, I played football, basketball, and ran track. I didn't play baseball because they didn't have a baseball team. And the reason that I ultimately left Hillcrest was because they didn't have a baseball team. But I ran track, and and um, but at Hillcrest we didn't have our own track, and so Whitehaven High School would allow us from time to time to use their track to practice on, you know, to, to run a real 440, uh, you know, on, on on an oval track. And and I guess we went over there once a week, maybe twice a week. I forget. But um, on one occasion we were over there um, practicing, and there <laughs> there was a girl. Well, there's always a girl. Um, at least in my, in my, in my uh, story, there's always a girl. And her name was Carol Ann. And Carol Ann was in the 11th grade. I was in the 9th grade. and She was the cheerleader at Whitehaven High School. And Carol Ann and I um, entered into some flirtatious conversations on several occasions. And I don't know who flirted first. I think it was her. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I certainly flirted back. The problem is, Carol Ann had a boyfriend. His name was Johnny Rose. He was an 11th grader, too. He played offensive right guard for Whitehaven's championship team. (laughs) He was uh, about six inches taller than I was and at least 100 pounds heavier than I was. And so he came over to express his displeasure at my flirtations with his girlfriend. And in the course of his expressions of those, of his disfavor, he spit on me. And you know what I did? I spit back on him. Fortunately, there were some coaches nearby (laughs) as uh, Johnny uh, began to uh, pummel me into sawdust. But the point is, every time I think of Jesus being spit on, I remember that. And to be spit on and not to retaliate. I was in the ninth grade, and the guy was 100 pounds heavier than I was, but it doesn't matter. You spit on me, and I'm not going to let you get away with that. I'm going to spit back. But he didn't. He was taken away by oppression and judgment and some Spitting. There's all kinds of displays of Jesus' deity throughout the Bible, but that's one of them too, that he was spat upon and he doesn't retaliate. There's one other thing that I want you to see, which I think is another item in his submission. Verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And look at this. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You know that's a rhetorical question, don't you? And you know what a rhetorical question is. A rhetorical question is a question that suggests its own answer. And so who considered what was going on? <laughs> you know what the answer is, don't you? Nobody. Nobody gave a whip. Nobody cared. They did not understand what was transpiring before their very eyes. And so Jesus suffered what he suffered. Alone. You know, guys, if you are seated here today and God, by sovereign grace, has opened your eyes to see the beauty of Christ and the enormity of your sin. When you see some of this, surely it's got to touch you in some way. If nothing else, forget all the pathos. But just fix your attention on the last statement of verse 8. He was stricken for the transgressions of my people. That would be us. All of this being shorn and shaved and like a slam led to the slaughter. That was a part of dealing with the transgressions of my people. And if God has opened your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, then when you, when we read this, when we hear of the transgressions, we say, "Yes, that's me." You know, the world wants you and wants me to believe that I'm a, the world wants me to believe that I'm a good man. I'm not a good man. Augustine used to say that my greatest virtues were nothing but splendid sins. What I am is the beneficiary of the great work of Good Friday. But, ladies and gentlemen, more fundamentally than that, all of this that is taking place, all of this he does, and our hearts want to cry out, Oh, he did that for me, and that is not true. Ladies and gentlemen, we benefited from what he did, but all of this is done not for me and not for the wicked witch. It is done for his father. He performs this work so that the honor of his father might be held intact. He does this work so that the father would have a legitimate grounds on which to forgive people like me. People did who didn't deserve forgiveness. He does this work so that the honor of his father might be maintained. He does this work so that his father might be the just and the justifier. Dear ones, Good Friday is 12 days away. And the reason that we call it good is because without it, there would be no Justice in God granting forgiveness to the guilty. But now there is. Because the transgressions of my people have been paid for. You see, as a result of this finished work, Justice and mercy have kissed each other. And they have kissed each other on a cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Yes, he would. And the gospel is, He did. Our Father, would you uh, use these scenes from this, this passage and others to give us a greater love for the Savior and the work that he has accomplished on our behalf, a work that allowed you to maintain justice and yet grant mercy where it was undeserved. Father, that which is being discussed in this passage is an event that was done for your honor and glory. And only the servant, this servant of Isaiah 53 could accomplish it. And we revel, we glory in the great work of Christ for his people, for us. Now, Lord, forgive us that our love for you waxes and wanes. We love you. We are sorry we love you so little. But would you enable us to love you more? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.